0: Sometimes it's a real privilege. Well, it's always a privilege to be able to share God's Word. Sometimes it's more of a privilege than at others because as you're preparing for it, you just realize how, how relevant it is to your own circumstances and your own life. And I was thinking about a lot of the issues that were involved in the words that we look at from Ephesians 1 verse 15 onwards uh, this week. And I just think it's wonderful how God communicates to us and speaks to us through His Word. So let me just pray before we look at this. Lord, we ask that You would help us, <coughs> that as we come to Your Word, that You would guide us, that we would hear the voice of Jesus speaking to us, that we would that You would remove the things that cause resistance, whether it is uh, we are choked by the worries and deceitfulness of this life, whether we are immersed in fear, whether, O Lord, we are spiritually dead, we ask that you would give us eyes to see, and that you would give us hearts to love, and that we would truly be able to turn to you. For we ask it in your name. Amen. Enlightenment. Uh, I entitled this Ephesians 1, verses 15 to 18. We'll read that in a moment, but it, it is about enlightenment. And that gave me t- two kind of insights or three insights into how we use the word enlightenment. Uh, if you're an enlightened person, everyone wants to be an enlightened person. And this first one I entitled, are you an enlightened Scot? Uh, that has nothing to do with rugby, which we pay no attention to whatsoever, uh, but, or any kind of sport or whatever. But it's, uh, there's a a kind of arrogance in certain aspects of the Scottish establishment that talk about the Scottish Enlightenment. Uh, that's a version of what's called the Enlightenment, I'm given a definition up there from a dictionary. The Enlightenment has been given many def- differing definitions, but it was at its broadest a philosophical movement of the 18th century which stressed human reasoning over blind faith or obedience and was thus in contrast with much of the re- religious and political order of the day while also encouraging scientific thinking. And the point of that is that it was supposed to lead us out of the darkness of religion and superstition into the clarity of modern rational thinking and actions. And you may say, that doesn't bother me. I'm not really interested in that. As soon as I hear the words philosophy, my brain switches off. Well, switch it back on because it does bother you and it does affect you because there are plenty of people who will say, I'm not going to believe in God because it's superstitious or how do we know it's right? And people will think that their mind has the capacity to understand and to make judgments about God. And that's a product of the enlightenment where human beings are the ones who understand and know and grasp everything. And all you have to do is ask simply, has that happened? Are we more enlightened? Are we more rational? Are we clearer? Now, there are others that recognize that we are not, and that's the Buddhist view. Can we go on to the next one, please? I think Yeah. A lot of people in our culture react against that view of enlightenment, and they go almost the complete opposite: the Buddhist view of enlightenment. And I, I loved this quote. it's a bit lengthy, but let me give it to you. The only true answer to the question is to realize enlightenment. Short of that, we come up with provisional answers that teachers tell us do not really do justice to enlightenment. So you can't say anything about enlightenment, you just have to experience it. Enlightenment can be defined as the cessation of Dukkha, which is another word usually mangled in translation. It can be defined as the full realization of the truth of the Buddha's teachings. It can be defined as awakening to a great reality most of us never perceive. So you see the difference. The traditional version of the word enlightenment or the modernist version is one that says, we can understand, we can grasp, we just need to come out of the darkness. Whereas the Buddhist version, which lots of people are into in different forms say, We can't understand, we can't grasp, we just have to experience the light. Enlightenment in the Buddhist sense, it says, has nothing to do with knowledge or intellect, nor is it living in an otherworldly state of being blissed out or having visions or supernatural experiences. And I I love this. In his book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, Shunru Suzuki Roshi said that enlightenment is nothing special. You may say universal nature or Buddha nature or enlightenment, you may call it by many names. But for the person who has it, it is nothing. And for the person who has it, it is something. And you'll all sit there and go, wow, that is profound. For the person who has it, it is nothing. For the person who has it, it is something. And if you sit there going, wow, that is profound, uh, can I ask you again, please, to switch your brain on? Because it's not, it's not profound. It doesn't make any sense, and that's the point. People go, well, I'm enlightened because uh, I'm into nonsense. Or people say, I'm enlightened because I'm into rational thinking. Now, those are the two most popular options that exist in our culture. It's why in some of our schools you'll find that in that some Christianity is taught, in others it's not. But I was quite amused in one school where Christianity wasn't really allowed to be taught, that the children were, ta- were being taught Buddhist thinking, inverted commas, which was close your eyes, imagine you're in a pink room, do all this kind of stuff and that will eventually lead to enlightenment. Well, I find all of that incredibly sad, and I think that there is a much wider and better perspective, and that's the biblical one. And if you look at the passage, let me just read this passage, <coughs> Ephesians one fifteen. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. This is the Christian view of enlightenment. It is the view that comes from the Bible. It is the view that I believe is the truth that enlightenment is to know God. Not to know just about God, but is actually to know God. But the question for us becomes, and and we get really confused with this, how do we know? And how do we know that we know? Sometimes we think we have it worked out. If you're a rationalist, enlightenment kind of person, you say, well, my brain can work it all out. That's fine. If you're a more new agey Buddhist type person, you say, well, I can't work it out, but I can become one with the one and feel it. But if you're uh, a Christian or you're, you're trying to work these things out, you're saying, how, how can I possibly know? And many of us in our lives are, are faced with fears and with doubts and um, with questions that we struggle with because we're supposed to know, and yet sometimes we have these questions, and sometimes we think, we, we think, we think, that we can work it out, and then other times we're full of doubts. Sometimes we feel and have an inner certainty about God. We know that when we sing, what a friend we have in Jesus. There's just that incredible assurance we have. But other times we sing, what a friend we have in Jesus, and we go, do we really? Emotionally, we really struggle. There's a blackness that overcomes us. Sometimes most of us are going, well, just, this is just too heavy, it, we're too busy existing, we just let it go. Putting the food on the table, getting our car into the garage, doing our job, watching the television, whatever it is, We, we raising children or whatever, we, we focus on these things and the kind of big questions we let go. Well, it is a, a blessed relief to come to the Word of God and have the Word of God address directly these situations where God speaks to us, instructs us, confronts us, comforts us, challenges us, provokes us, and through speaking to us in His Word, loves us. So that's what we are looking at. And Verses 15 to 23, by the way, uh, we're not going to look past verse 18 this morning. Uh, We'll save that for next week but verses 15 to 23 are a one-sentence prayer that Paul prayed for these Christians in Ephesus. He praises God for having blessed us in Christ, and now he prays that we would understand the blessing. It is a great thing to understand the blessing that Jesus Christ brings. And for those of you who are not yet Christians, this may sound a bit strange to you, for those of us who are Christians, we need to be reminded of it, that a healthy Christian life, there are two things that go together, praise and prayer. Some of us long for spiritual blessings, for new spiritual blessings, and we don't see what we've already got in Christ. Some of us understand what we've got in Christ, at least to some degree, but we become complacent and we've lost our appetite for Jesus. We can sing, we can read, we can pray, but it's all as dull as dishwater emotionally for us because that's not where our heart is. So the solution that's offered here is very simple. We praise God for what He's given us, and we long for a better understanding of what He's given us. We're never satisfied with saying, I got it, I understand it, I'm there. We always want to know and to understand more. So, firstly, he begins with some good gossip. He says, I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. There's a rumor that's reached me. There's some gossip that's reached me. We live, as human beings, continually with gossip. Now, most of the gossip that we hear, I think the gossip that spreads quickly, this may be wrong, but it, it's, bad news travels really quickly. Did you hear that? And you'll hear it incredibly quickly. Um, let's say I do something wrong here, you know, um, you know, something dreadfully wrong. I don't know. Uh, strip off my shirt and tie or something. And, uh, I will guarantee you that will go all around Scotland. There will not be a church in Scotland where that hasn't been heard of. Um, I was. I told some of you I was speaking at the Baptist ministers in St Andrews, and a guy came up to me and he said, "I am so so glad to meet you." He said, "I didn't really think." Uh, what I'd heard about you was true. And I said, just have interest, what did you heard? He said, I heard that you were in Central Baptist Church, and um, what, what had actually happened, by the way, was I'd gone to Central Baptist, I did a children's talk, I told, I had a pair of swimming trunks and I held up, and I told a story about swimming. Now, one or two people were offended. I never even thought it was Baptist, you know, and everything, but uh, from that one thing, this minister in Hamilton heard that I had turned up in Central Baptist and had stripped down to my swimming trunks and had given a children's address in my swimming trunks. And he believed it. And he just, you know, he'd, he'd heard this. He'd heard this story. This was years ago that he'd heard it. And it was only this. Um, he said, I couldn't believe it could be true. But obviously there were people who did. Gossip, we, we, things that are bad, we, did you hear about so-and-so? Did you hear they had an affair? Did you hear that this pastor did this? Did you hear that this person did that? Good news travels by gossip as well but often a lot less quickly. And what Paul does here is he takes this good news and he says, I've heard this. I've heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus. I've heard about your love for all the saints. Those of you who know your Bibles know that faith, love, and hope go together, and they do here. They're mentioned in verse 12 and also in verse 18, the hope to which he has called you. Just a simple thing there. It's always good for us to share and communicate when we experience God's blessing. Did you hear the good news? Did you hear of this? Did you hear about new people coming into this church? Did you hear, well, I heard something fantastic in church this Sunday, to pass on the good news, to gossip the good news. In fact, you could argue that that's all that evangelism is, is gossiping the good news. Their faith Incidentally, you look at the verse there. It says, it's shown in their love for all the saints, in their love for one another. The fruit of authentic faith is always love, and authentic faith is always faith in the Lord Jesus. That's the bedrock. That's where we start. We place, uh, we trust, and place our lives into the hands of the Lord Jesus. We are Christians, and if you're not a Christian, you need to understand this. We are Christians not because we follow a certain moral code, not because we've been brought up in a particular culture, not because we attend a particular church, but because we follow Jesus Christ. And that's why we are here. We are here to get to know Him better. And so Paul thanks them for their faith, and he he rejoices in the love that they have. Verse 16, he never stops giving thanks, remembering you in my prayers. He gives thanks to God for their faith precisely because God is the author of that faith. I love the fact that Paul the pastor has a continual sense of thankfulness, and I think about myself, and I think about other people I know who are pastors, and what's on our head all the time, what's on our heart is, we've got this problem, and we've got this issue, and we're stressed out, and I think that's true of many Christians as well, and Paul says, I am so thankful for what I have heard about you. Simple question, do we pray with thankfulness for others. We pray for those who are sick. We pray concerning problem situations that we are in. But do we pray with thankfulness, with persistent, continual prayer? But he's not satisfied. He prays for something more. He prays that they would have true knowledge. This is an expression I keep asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ comes also from Colossians 1 verse 9 and Philippians 1 verse 9, the sister letters to Ephesians. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You know, in Christian circles, there are the two extremes of what I'm calling enlightenment thinking, rationalist enlightenment thinking, and Buddhist new age thinking. In Christian terms, you get Christians who say, I'm going to know about Jesus, I'm going to take a course in the Bible, I'm going to work things through in my head, and that's it. I love sound preaching, I love good doctrine. I love all of that. But there's something missing. Quite often you'll meet people like that, and there's just something missing. They're right, but there's something missing. And on the other hand, you'll get people who say, well, I really want to be close to Jesus Christ. I really want to experience Jesus Christ. I want to know the anointing of the spirit or they 'll use lots of different jargon Christian jar- jargon and again there 's something about what they say that 's right, but there 's also something that is missing and that 's what we have in the verse here. The eyes of your heart may be enlightened or the, you may, sorry the one before the God may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. The Hebrew concept of knowledge is a combined knowledge of experience and understanding, wisdom and revelation. Wisdom being the true fear of the Lord, the true sense of the awesomeness of God, and revelation coming from God revealing things to us through His Word. And Paul's great concern for the Ephesians is that they would know God and that they would know him better. I think that we don't often share that concern. I think that we we look for, for the fruits, but sometimes we think, well, I do know because I've done the catechism or I've had the experiences. I can tick all the boxes. And the truth is that you don't. You know to some point, but the first storm that comes along, the first doubts, the first fears, the first darkness, it drives you into total and absolute despair because you were walking in complete certainty that you knew, and then all of a sudden you think, I don't know, and you completely panic. And what happens is some people with that experience will then go, okay, I don't know so that there can't be a God. That doesn't actually make a great deal of sense, but that's what we feel, and at that point we go with our feelings but we need to reverse this. That's why Paul for Paulus is so important. Adolf Monod said this, philosophy taking man for its center says, know thyself. Only the inspired word which proceeds from God has been able to say, know God. It is actually more important for you and I to know God than it is to know ourselves, even though it is important to know ourselves. Again, in our culture, that's difficult because we live in a culture where people have been brought up with, um, forgive the term, what I call, what we call a relativistic mindset. What they mean by that is that you can't really know the truth. You can't really know almost anything for certain. And so we're told you have open minds that are willing to accept anything. And that's the problem. G.K. Chesterton put it beautifully, when people cease to believe in God, it's not that they believe in nothing, it's that they will believe in anything. We, Paul says, we need a mind that's open to the teaching of God, and it's a knowledge that comes only by revelation. God's Word is revelation. The Word applied by the Spirit is revelation. We need the wisdom to understand the Word. We need the Holy Spirit, because surely what is spoken of here, that He would give you the Spirit of wisdom and revelation, is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, the agent of revelation. We pray uh, as Christians, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. If you're not a Christian, you become one, you receive the Holy Spirit. But as a Christian, when you have the Holy Spirit, you still pray to be filled with the Spirit and for the mystery of revelation. I saw a fascinating interview uh, this week, a five-minute interview with Philip Pullman, the children's author who's an avowed atheist. And he was asked in that interview what would make you believe? And he gave a really interesting answer. He said, not reason. He said, I would need to experience God. And in a way, he's right. Not rational argument, but experience. Now, God, you can experience God perhaps through the rational argument, but you get to a point where you say, okay, this person said this, this person said this, I read that. On the balance of things, as I judge it, it appears to me that there is probably a God. You've not been convinced of God at all. You've just gone through a logical thought process that when you finish, you say, well, but you've made two mistakes. The first is you think you're capable of making that judgment. And secondly, someone else could come along and give a stronger argument the other way. And what do you do then? You say, okay, there is no God. And then someone else comes along and changes it again. Okay, okay, there is a God. I'll get baptized again. and, And it keeps going on. What you need is not that we are irrational or unreasonable, but without the Holy Spirit, none of us would know God. That's why he says that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Verse 18, that's the important thing, the eyes of your heart. And heart in the Jewish culture means both the mind and the emotions. What they're concerned with there is not what you see physically, but what you see internally. It's our inner eyes. By inclination, those inner eyes are closed to the things of God. We are biased and prejudiced against God. When the Holy Spirit comes, He doesn't give us an, uh, a new brain. It's true that our minds are renewed, but it isn't like a brain transplant when you become a Christian. And it's not like having your brain killed off when you become a Christian. But what the Holy Spirit does is he takes our heart of stone, which is dead to the things of God, where where we can't see because we're blind. And what he does is he turns that stone to flesh. It's the marvelous prophecy in Ezekiel where uh, Ezekiel is shown a bunch of stones and is asked, can these stones live? And Ezekiel gives the right answer, O Lord, you alone know Well, you preach to the stones. You speak to the bones. Can these bones live? He's showing a skeleton. Can these bones live? And there's flesh come upon the bones, but they need God to breathe his spirit to come in. So all our arguments and all our discussions and all our thinking and all our rational, it's, it's, it's there, it's needed, it's necessary, but without the spirit, it's still dead. And so he says, I pray that you would be enlightened. The the eyes of your heart would receive light, that they would be enlightened. Now, obviously, Paul prays that for those who are not Christians, and we would pray that for those of you who are not yet Christians. But this is the key thing, I think, in this verse for those of us who are Christians. It's written to us. Our Christianity has made the mistake of thinking, I've become a Christian, I accepted Jesus Christ, I trusted in Jesus, that's it. Now it's just all working it out in my life. Now it's living for Jesus, now it's praising him, and so on. But I know. But what Paul says, and it's a stress throughout his letters, and I think it's a stress throughout the Bible, is you don't know. You don't really know. Yes, you know Jesus to some extent, but he prays that we would receive the Spirit, we'd be more open to the Spirit to know Christ. And again, here's another mistake. I would say in the 19th century, you had a lot of Protestant evangelicals who worked along the lines of, well, it's, you know, it's rational, it's, we've got to work it through, and the Spirit was largely neglected. In the 20th century, what happened was, with the Pentecostal revivals and the charismatic movement and so on, that In many ways, thankfully, the the emphasis on the Holy Spirit was was re-emphasized. But what's happened is that a lot of that has become distorted because the devil always does that. Because now people think that receiving the Spirit is about them getting power. It's about being able to heal the sick. It's about being able to live in victory and all the other expressions that get used. But you will find that the majority of times that this idea of receiving the Spirit is used, it is that we might know Jesus better. Doing the the works of power and so on is not unimportant, but it's not crucial. It's not central. What's central is for the unbeliever. What will the Holy Spirit do? He will convict you of sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. He will make you feel that you need Jesus. He will take away all the props and excuses that you have so that you come to rely upon Jesus Christ. That's what the Spirit does. What does the Spirit do for the Christian? We are under assault from the devil. We are under assault from our culture. We're under assault in so many different ways. And the Spirit takes the things of God. And reveals them to us. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived the things that God has prepared for those who love them. But God has revealed it to us by His Spirit. I think that is just incredibly important. And then verse 18, look at the knowledge of actually what is it that He actually gives, that you might know the hope to which He has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance. Um, I'm not going to look at the the power. We'll look at that next week, but just let me mention this this hope. What is the, the hope? What did God call us for? It's not purposeless. It's not random. The hope of the call is the hope that we have because God has called us. It's not a vague hope. It's, it's something that's absolutely certain. On Christ the solid rock I stand all other ground is sinking sand. My hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness. And this is what he's called us to. And as you go through Ephesians, you'll see him stating this in different forms, repeatedly. We're called to belong to Jesus. We're called to the fellowship of Jesus' saints. We're called to be holy. We're called to freedom. We're called into one body, into the harmony of that one body. We're called to patience in the face of unjust suffering, We're called to eternal glory in Christ. When a Christian dies, and in these past week I've heard of several Christians who've been around for a long time in this country who have died, and uh, there's a great sorrow involved in that, yes, but there's also this. It is right to say that they've been called home to glory in Christ. Their calling has become complete. God knew that when he called us. That was in God's mind when he called us. Remember what God has prepared for those who love him. Our eyes need to be opened so that we can see it. And when our eyes are opened, the eyes of our heart are open so we can see it. It makes an enormous difference then to how we behave. You don't do it the other way around. You don't say, I'm gonna behave better so that my eyes will be opened. You pray that your eyes would be opened and that affects your behavior. Our compassion to our fellow human beings, for example, is rooted and grounded in the fact that men and women have a wonderful destiny and that our work in this world is not in vain. It is not senseless. It is not purposeless. It is not meaningless. It is not random. And he calls that the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. That could mean either the inheritance he gives or the inheritance he receives because God's people are his inheritance. But either way, it's a win-win situation for us. Go back to Colossians uh, chapter 1 verse 9 the day we stopped heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you, asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light." That's the inheritance that we've got. Likewise, in First Peter chapter 1, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. I love that. I love the idea that God says, your salvation is not dependent on the inheritance that you've got here in St. Peter's today or here in Dundee today, but it's actually kept in heaven for you. It's guaranteed. It's in the the safest security box you will ever find in the universe. And Paul says, we are fellow heirs with Christ. It's his inheritance, and we share in it with him. One day it will be ours. What that will be is beyond our capacity to imagine. All I ask you is to think of this. Think of the darkest, loneliest, most horrible experience you've ever been through. And when you contrast that with the inheritance that you've got in Christ, it will in eternity absolutely fade to nothing because it will be so trivial in comparison with the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. We have a fantastic inheritance, and as Christians, we do not need to be those who are, who are angry and bitter and and you know just scared, fearful that we're going to lose it. We are not going to lose it. In the New Testament, I think, and let me finish with this this magnificent vision I think that we have of what this is. We are told by First John, in, by John in First John. Um, We shall see him, for we shall know him. We shall know him, for we shall see him as he is. We shall see God. We shall see Christ. And we will worship him. Do you know, maybe I envy those of you who are Christians who never fear and who never doubt and who never experience any kind of spiritual problems. You're always so assured. You're always so confident. At least that's how you appear. Maybe I envy you, but maybe I don't. Because sometimes when you go through the darkness and sometimes when you go through the blackness, it just helps you to see and to appreciate and to grasp more the absolute amazing truth and wonder of who Jesus is and what he's done. He's the light of the world. And you're walking around going, yeah, that's fine, as though he's just like a torch, He's the light of the world, and until you know what darkness is, you probably don't appreciate what the light is. This is a transforming vision. We shall see him, and we shall be like him. We shall enjoy perfect fellowship with each other. You know, the number one reason that most Christians doubt and have fears and back off is because of what they see in other Christians. They seem so confident. They seem so assured, and yet they're so nasty, or they were so hypocritical, and you know why we're like that? Because we don't see Jesus. When we see Jesus, it changes us. As I say, next week we'll look at the greatness of His power and how we experience that. But meanwhile, let me just leave you with this. How important it is to know this. How important it is that we seek enlightenment. How important it is that we do not sit in judgment upon God, that we do not think that our minds have the capacity to say, well, yeah, God exists or God does not, or uh, God should be like this, or if I were God, I would do this. That is an arrogance that comes only from blindness. It's important for us to, to realize that we don't know it all anyway. We, we know certain things, but we have so much more to learn. We have so much more to experience. And once you grasp this, it affects your worship, it affects your moods, it affects your behavior. And you will never pray a greater prayer than, Lord, forgive and enlighten me. Bring light. We sang that at the beginning. Send forth your light and your truth. It's it's just so important. Well, for me, this is just so important that, you know, I know the more I go on as a pastor, I know my words are utterly meaningless and useless unless the Holy Spirit brings light. But I believe and totally believe that that's exactly what God does, that He brings your light through His Word. He brings light through His Spirit. It is just such a tremendous thing. And I would plead with each of you. I plead, first of all, with those of you who are Christians, that you would ask the Lord to give you new light and to fill you with his Spirit. If he gives you, look, if he gives you the power to work great miracles, that's fine. If he gives you the power to raise the dead, great, we'll pack out the church. But that's not the major issue. For me, and I think this is biblical, the major issue is you just need to know Jesus better. I know we've got problems and it's good to talk them through and lots of different issues and things like that, but you just need to know Jesus better. That, that's it. That really is it. And if you're not a Christian, actually, it's pretty well the same deal. You just need to know Jesus. You just need to find Jesus. And what I've said to you will indicate to you that it's not this kind of shallow, superficial thing that so, many often, so often it's portrayed as but it 's something profoundly deep. it goes right into the very heart of your being. In fact, as you find Jesus or as He finds you, you receive a new heart, you receive a new, a renewed spirit, a new life. You are actually born from above, born of the spirit, born again. May God grant it would be so let 's pray. Oh Lord, we can do nothing other than just simply pray what Paul prays for the Ephesians. We give thanks for those who are believers, for those who have faith in the Lord Jesus and love for all the saints. We pray that you would grant us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know Christ better. We pray that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened so that we may know the hope to which he has called us, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. For we ask in your name. Amen.
1: You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically as well as Christian commentary on the latest current affairs in Scotland please visit the website of Solace the Centre for Public Christianity at solace-cpc.org Once again that's www.solas-cpc.org Thanks for listening.